0: Every one of us in this room, we've got dreams, things with all our heart we'd really like to do, but I promise you the only way to get there is to make today count. Start and be faithful in the small things.
1: Welcome back to There Is Always A Way podcast with Dr. Jay Strack. Is technology helping or hurting us? In response to recent popular accounts, today's guest, scientist and philosopher John Lennox, offers a Christian perspective on humanity's future, the problems raised by artificial intelligence, and the atheist conception of what it means to be human. In his book, 2084, Dr. Lennox shows us how the Christian worldview, when properly understood, can provide evidence-based, credible answers that will help you navigate today's fast-changing world. This Christian perspective on humanity's future introduces a kaleidoscope of ideas, such as the key developments in technological enhancement, bioengineering, and in particular, artificial intelligence. Today, there's always a way with Dr. John Lennox. Here's Dr. Strack.
0: Well, hello. I want to
1: welcome all of
0: our listeners. Whether you're watching or listening or on a tr- uh, in your car or on a treadmill, running, jogging, whatever, I know you're going to get a great deal out of this podcast. In fact, I know, uh, based on the book, uh, that I've gone through several times, uh, underlined, folded pages, made notes. Uh, I promise this is a subject that you'll go back and listen to this podcast several times. I like that Dr. Lennox, cause it gets my, my listenership up cause they have, they listen so many times when you're on, but, this is there's always a way podcast and our special guest is the one of a kind uh dr john lennox and dr lennox we are honored to have you back on you were on our very first podcast some 30 podcasts ago our very first on where is god in a coronavirus world and man you brought such insight and such uh uh discernment on, on, on helping us navigate these very foggy days. And uh, it was just a, a breath of fresh air. It was like a wind from elsewhere blew away a lot of the fog that that invisible enemy was causing. So I want to thank you for that. But I, and I want to make sure you and your wife are doing well there in Oxford.
2: Well, thank you very much. I didn't know that I was honored to be the very first podcast. And now it sounds as if I'm the 31st.
1: Yes, sir. But
2: we are doing well. Since I last shared with you, I've been doing a lot of writing and a lot of thinking because we still have lockdown here. But we have been preserved from the virus at least. And uh, we're well looked after good neighbors and also good food delivery services and constant contact with Skype and Zoom with our children and, of course, with many other people around the world.
0: Yes, sir. Well, Doc, a question that's always intrigued me about you, a young man growing up in Northern Ireland uh, who goes on to become literally a, a renowned mathematician and then a philosophy professor, and a philosophy of science professor. And then in the midst of all of that, uh, between Oxford and Cambridge, in the midst of that, you have written so many, uh, I wanna say treatises, but so many books and pamphlets on, on the Christian faith. In other words, the reality of it, the surety of it, Biblical worldview, you've become one of the leading apologi- apologists in the world in my lifetime. I say all that to say, with the math background, the science background, uh, written so many books on theology and, and understanding worldview, what in the world, and, and I say this out of great curiosity, led to this interest in uh certain things of science i'm talking about all the latest technology the latest discoveries the latest theories and i've just been intrigued because normally oxford i think of as traditional and stayed and yet every time i'm around you you're thinking 10 years ahead 15 years ahead on some cutting edge issue that's going on in the world. How how did all that happen? What what started that spark?
2: Well, I mean, I've always, it's, it's very hard to say looking back, but I suppose the key to many things is that you have good teachers. And my teachers at school were very varied. I had very good language teachers and a very good maths teacher. And that sparked the interest in mathematics. But in those days, of course, You couldn't do mathematics, really, without doing a fair bit of physics, and that was even true at Cambridge. And because I was a Christian and curious about the way in which Christianity fitted with science and mathematics, that meant that very early on, and I'm talking about late teenage, I began to read some people that really opened my mind. One in particular was the late Dr. Robert Clark of Cambridge, who was a prolific author and and thinker. And he wrote about science and Christianity in a way that really opened my mind. And what I learned from him was there is science, but there's also the interpretation of science and the way in which various people came, all of us in fact came to science with presuppositions. And I got fascinated in particularly in the way in which atheism influenced many scientists. Mm -hmm. And that started a lifelong passion. And so my interest in virtually everything grew and grew. (laughs) And uh, Oxford and Cambridge, neither of them, I can assure you, is stayed from a scientific perspective or a philosophical one. They're both vigorous centers of, of thinking and research. So it's been my privilege to be at both a student at Cambridge and a professor at Oxford. So that gives uh, just a little insight. But I think it was my parents originally, it gave me a love for thinking about everything and realizing that this world is God's world, it's God's creation, and God has encouraged us to explore it. Even in the beginning of the book of Genesis, he told human beings to name the animals, which is the beginning of biology, actually. And... I've been involved in this with with great pleasure. Mm. Believing it, it is something that God wants me to do.
0: Well, your latest book, I believe number 24. Could be. But who's counting? Uh, But your latest book, I promise uh, all of our uh, viewers and listeners is a classic, 2084. And it is a look at artificial intelligence and the future of humanity. And there are several prominent writers today. There have been several great fictional, uh, books that have painted a very dark picture of what the future will be. And, but I'm going to ask you about the title. I know you get asked that a lot and it's, uh, I've heard you explain it. It's fascinating, but I want you to know 2084. I want our listeners to know this is a book that will take you where you are, and give you a real understanding about where we're headed. The thing I love about Dr. Lennox, and and uh, he's a brilliant man, but I don't I've ne- I I don't think I've read an author that explains. And he does it in a way that it's not like. Now let me help you understand what I mean. It, I mean, you know, like the, you know, when dystopia, you know, I uh, Orwell's book, Orwell's book, and uh, Huxley's book. But yet, right in the middle, you have a definition from the from the English dictionary about what it means worst worst possible description of an imaginary place. I mean, so throughout the book whether it's what AI is, and I'll ask you about all that as we move forward, but you explain terms. And I wanna thank you for that because I felt like I was uh, getting a private session and a tutorial, but it really aided my understanding. So I don't want anyone to think, man, this is way beyond my pay grade to know. And after this podcast, preferably they'll realize you have made this understandable with some interesting warnings, but also some assurances because of our faith. So tell us about the title 2084 and how you got the idea for book number 24.
2: Well, first of all, let me say that I appreciate the encouragement that I have defined my terms. I suppose that's the mathematician in me. Mathematicians regard definitions as very important because it, makes clear what you're talking about rather than being vague and you're quite right. I place an emphasis in this book 2084 on the matter of definitions because there's a lot of confusion out there and often a simple explanation can clear away a lot of fog. So that's the first thing. The second thing, the title 2084, (laughs) There's quite an interesting story about how I got it. Of course, it is a reflection on George Orwell's book, 1984, which introduced new terms into the English language, like big brother is watching you and thought speak and all this kind of stuff. And of course, many of the things that George Orwell predicted in that science fiction dystopia have actually come to pass and we can talk about those and they actually form part of what's known as narrow artificial intelligence but actually i got the title from a non-christian atheist professor of chemistry at oxford who's very famous we were traveling by car to do a debate and you can see the debate on youtube Uh, Professor Peter Atkins and myself at Southampton University, and it is a very vigorous debate, I tell you. But we were chatting in the car, not about the debate, because we ruled that topic out. So Peter asked me what I was writing, and I told him, and he said, I've got a title for you. I said, what's that? He said, 2084. Well, I said, I like it, and if I use it, I will acknowledge you, which I've done in the book. The basic idea was to get across to people just what is going on in the world of artificial intelligence. And as you put it, to give them some assurances, but also to take seriously some of the warnings, not just about the futuristic, futuristic stuff, mm. but about stuff that's actually happening in our societies today. So that's, that's the basic background to it. Why I wrote the book was that I was asked to give a talk to a group of serious Christian leaders on this topic, because it relates to our understanding of who human beings are. And that is a kind of side reference on what are we doing to human beings? Are we going to create intelligent robots and all this kind of stuff? And I first thought no, and then I thought, no, this is too important. And I started work on the talk and then rapidly discovered that this would provide material for a book. So I've worked on it for two or three years now, and I'm very encouraged to see the results. Undervan have done it beautifully. I hope you'll agree. Uh, No
0: no question about it. No question. And we were privileged uh, because uh, you brought two different lectures to our SLU students uh, for their graduation. You honored us by being our keynote speaker, and you spoke on what you were finding and where you were uh, at the time. That's right,
2: and my my talk to your students actually was part of the research process, so I'm grateful for the opportunity because as you saw, the reaction of the students and the other people who were with them was hugely positive. And yeah. that was one of the indicators that helped me to keep my head down, so to speak, and well, keep writing.
0: And, Doc, you have a way, uh, and of course the thing I love is that our goal is to give students about a 20-year head start. You know, that let's, let's teach them what they need to know now. You yes, know the best we absolutely. can. So uh, whether it's people skill, the soft things, you know, people skills, time management, goals, but also uh, you know how to think and how to dream and how to lead and what it means to be a young man, young woman of God. But you have such a way. Uh, I mean, I love. I, I would encourage all of our uh, listeners and viewers to this podcast to go on YouTube and check out these debates between you and various personalities. But one thing, you're full of grace and truth. You have always kept your humanity. One thing you stress in this book is that we've got to almost fight for our for humanity. We got to really make sure we understand what it means to be human and, right. and in the highest sense of it. But you've you've been full of grace and truth. And, and you've maintained relationships and friendships in many, uh, many cases, even though you were going toe to toe with some pretty uh, uh, heavyweight amb- people, big time. So I want to thank you for that. I also want you to know that your emphasis, once there was a phrase, and you were quoting Dan Brown in one of his uh, books. But it said, but I hear this and see this, and I'd like you to comment. There are those who use results to fulfill lifelong goals of employing the truth of science to destroy, quote, the myth of religions. And, you know, that just seems to be what's happening to our students. It's what's happening in many of our leading educational institutions but it's happening across the board, not across the pond here in the United States as well as Europe. But you know, folks are trying to take the truths of science and then they use that to try to make religion and faith to be a myth.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it was reading that, the novel by Dan Brown was drawn to my attention by somebody else who, who said, look, here's a book selling in millions, and it's influencing many young people and giving them ideas. And actually the hero of it or the anti-hero is a multi-billionaire AI expert, and he's trying to use science to destroy religion. And I wondered if that was Dan Brown's own agenda, which to a certain extent it is. So I read the book and I thought, right, I'm going to interact with this book, even if it's a novel, as well as interacting with some of the more heavyweight stuff written by Yuval Noah Harari, which is being sold in millions, like his book Homo Sapiens and more particularly Homo Deus. And I think that it's very important that a Christian engages with this, that, of course, the idea that you can use science to destroy the myth of religions is only partly true. You can destroy a lot of pagan religions, certainly by using science, uh, the religions of the ancient Greeks and Romans and Babylonians. But what you cannot use science to do is to destroy Christianity. In fact, it's the other way around. It's Christianity that gave us modern science. And that is one of my emphases in the book. And I am still amazed how few people realize the legacy of Christianity Mm. in respect of science itself. Some are aware that science has given us hospitals and hospices and government systems and major institutions of law and education or universities. But science itself is one of the biggest legacies of of Christianity. All the pioneers, Galileo and Kepler and Newton and Clark Maxwell and Babbage, were all believers in God. And I often say to people, I'm not ashamed, remotely ashamed, of being a scientist and a Christian because I see strong evidence that it was Christianity gave me my subject. I think Alvin Plantinga has put it very well when he says there is superficial conflict, but deep accord between science and religion, the biblical worldview, and there's superficial accord and deep conflict between science and the naturalistic, the atheistic worldview. And that's what I wanted to bring out in the context of AI, because I have brought it out in the context of other things in some other of my books.
0: Well, no question. We'll talk about defining. Let's define AI. I love it. I mean, I, you know, I'm reading long, and I'm trying to get my head around everything. And lo and behold, here's a section. What is AI? I mean, you know, so uh, once again, you take us where we are to help us get where we need to go. So uh, explain, if you would, what is AI, what is the effect today, and what will be the effect tomorrow?
2: AI, simply put, divides into two parts. One works at the moment. The other is full of speculation hype and all kinds of pretty well science fiction notions. But the first one, the AI that works today, we often refer to as narrow AI. Mm. Why is it narrow AI? Well, it's a system. Now let's see what a system consists of. It consists of a pretty heavyweight computer There is a large database and there is software which runs an algorithm, that's a set of rules for working out something, mainly recognizing patterns. But let me give an example that's very easy to understand. All of us are concerned with our health and lungs these days with COVID-19 are massively important. So let's imagine that we take a million x rays of people's lungs and we get the best lung doctors in the world to label them with the diseases that they represent. That's the database. All that is put into the computer's memory. And then I get something wrong with my breathing and an x ray is taken of my lungs. What the AI system does is to take the X-ray picture of my lungs and compare it with all the pictures in the database. And the algorithm is searching for matching patterns. And it will, in a few seconds, come up with saying, you have probably got disease X. And these days, this has reached such sophistication that the answer, the diagnosis you get is normally better than you get at your local hospital. And you can roll that out many, many times. There's massive research going on because we have the computing power now that we didn't earlier have to do this kind of thing very quickly. So let's sum up. What is that system doing? One thing and one thing only. It's searching for a match for your X-ray. Now, normally to do that requires human intelligence. This system is not intelligent, but it simulates intelligence because what it produces is something that normally takes intelligence. The work, the intelligent work has been done by the doctors, the people that designed and built the computer and the software. There's massive intelligence invested in the system, but what it does is not intelligent. It simply simulates intelligence. And that is hugely important because the vocabulary we use, artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep um, learning and all this kind of thing, can give people very easily the impression that we're dealing with an intelligent machine. We are not. That brings me to the second kind of AI, which is AGI, artificial general intelligence. Now, the idea here is to make something that is super intelligent. That is, it can do not just one thing, but everything, that it would normally take human intelligence to do. And research and thinking about that splits again into two. First of all, they're starting with human beings and trying to enhance their intelligence and turn them into a super intelligence. We can look at that in a minute. But then there's the other way of looking at it, and that is, the idea of building an intelligent being of some sort that doesn't depend on biology, but is based on silicon. And it's that kind of notion you hear when people talk about building a machine, we could upload our brains and the content of our minds onto them in the future, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll not be dependent on organismic material, organic material that, um, decays. So there's the quest for the super intelligence that can do everything human beings can do. And of course, we're nowhere near it for various reasons that I can discuss. So you have two separate things. You have the AI that's working at the moment. And some of it is very good, but there are risks with it because, and we can go into this if you wish, The systems that recognize patterns can recognize faces and surveillance technology can be used to pick up criminals and terrorists, but it can also be used to suppress people. So we can go into that uh, as and when you wish.
0: We're seeing that uh, today being played out on a pretty grand scale in Asia. Certain. uh, real totalitarian uh, consequences on an entire people group.
2: We are indeed in Xinjiang in China, in the Uyghurs, and it is very serious stuff because any reports that are reaching us in the West make absolutely grim uh, reading. Mm. And I first became aware of it in a Time Magazine article, I think a couple of years ago, that was written by an expert on China, a Chinese watcher. And uh, at the end of the article, there was a statement that this should be a warning to the West because all the technology that is used is already available here. And the only difference is that it is not yet in the hands of a totalitarian government. And immediately after I read that, I listened to our UK news and there was a police chief saying that's exactly what we need in London. But these people are being stopped every kilometre or so going down the street. Their smartphones are taken. Everything on them is red. And if anything doesn't agree with the cultural norms that are being imposed on them, they end up They disappear often and end up in rehabilitation camps. And we are told that over a million people are undergoing a process of re-education to destroy their language and culture. It is terrifying because this is 1984 with a vengeance. Certainly Big Brother has been watching us for a long time, but this is suppressive uh, regime using AI systems. And now they've developed these systems to such an extent that they don't just recognize people. They recognize the emotions that people are showing. And of course, if you combine that with tracking systems, they know everything about you. So this is a very serious development and needs to be thought of seriously before we all get entrapped by it.
0: Well, two terms doc come to mind uh you know the more i read i kept writing down the word ethics you know there is a real ethos that uh uh, we need to have and then secondly was the word conscience
1: Mm.
0: and uh it just seems to me that uh especially the example you give so you paint the picture so well Uh, because it's so real, so accurate, it's uh, real time. But that, you know, when you hear about people being reprogrammed, that, uh, you know, again, shows a very atheistic and a very uh, savage view of uh, mankind and our humanity.
2: Yes, it does. And one of the things I noticed when reading on this Uh, subject was the influence of atheistic worldviews profound uh, all around this topic, but certainly in its use in Xinjiang and so on. It's lost one of the central things that I talk about at considerable length in the book, and that is what And I was very interested to see Jordan Peterson talk about it not long ago. In one of his lectures in Genesis, he came across the statement. And God said, let us make man in our own image. And God created human beings, male and female, in his own image. And Peterson said, look, he said, we ignore this at our peril this is the cornerstone of Western civilization. And I think he's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And it's very important that we realize that the biblical worldview gives human beings a huge dignity that is being undermined by the atheist worldview that removes that dignity and regards human beings simply as machines to be altered, or scrapped if they don't work anymore, to put it very crudely. Mm -hmm. And so what is happening here is a very subtle and stealthy re-evaluation of what it means to be a human being. And this idea that is being advanced that human beings are just a stage we've evolved from animals, but now we are intelligent, we can take this process into our own hands and we can turn ourselves into super intelligent people. So that current human beings, one one if you like, are of no special significance. Whereas the Bible gives them infinite significance because they're the only creatures made in the image of God. And therefore my book, really wants to push that idea very strongly into the public domain and remind people of it and of its sheer importance and i think that for my christian friends and brothers and sisters we need to get a hold of this and not be ashamed of it because it gives us greater dignity and value than anything else does
0: well doc you certainly accomplish your mission i can i can tell you as i'm reading and learning about chemistry, and learning about physics, and learning about uh, various theories, in the middle of it, you talk about a couple big ideas, a couple big questions. Uh, First big question, where do we come from? I mean, right off the bat where you're reminding us that that's a question we need to be able to answer. Where do we come from? And the second big question, where are we going?
2: Yeah, that's right. Now, that is why, or one of the reasons why I interacted with Dan Brown's book, Origin, because his anti-hero or hero, the um, AI expert, he wants to use science to answer those two questions. Where do we come from and where are we going? And he uses AI to do it. Now, I'll not spoil the story for, for readers as to how he does that, but he concludes by using his scientific equipment that human beings have come about essentially by chance processes, certainly unguided processes. And as he looks to the future and extrapolates, he discovers that what he sees on his screen is two things becoming one, that is that human beings get merged with technology. That's an idea we're familiar with. I'm looking at you through a pair of glasses. The glasses are a bit of technology, and in a sense, they're merged with me. They're sitting on my nose. And we all are aware that we could have cochlear implants in our ears. And now Elon Musk has announced this week that he has got a neurochip that he's got in a pig at the moment and possibly in humans as well. We just don't know. In order to connect human beings with technology. And we have a word for that kind of thing, cyborg, a cybernetic organism. In other words, something that's partly organic and partly machine. And of course, some of that is wonderful. If, I lose a leg, they can give me a prosthetic leg and they can even give me some kind of nervous connection between my brain and that leg so that I can move it. And that kind of development is wonderful, but it raises, as you said a few moments ago, very big ethical questions. Where do we stop with this? It's one thing to fix a person, but it's another thing to try to enhance them with drugs and and bioengineering as Harari wants to do. And I think it's important to bring him into the picture when we're talking about this, because he at least is clear. He thinks the big agenda for the 21st century is firstly to solve the problem of physical death. It's just a technical problem. And what he means by that is that medical technology will mean in the future that humans may die, but they won't have to die. And of course, the side issue there is whatever cures them will only be for the very wealthy. It's a very much an elitist concept. Mm. But then, having solved the problem of physical death, he says the second agenda is to enhance human happiness by using genetic engineering and all kinds of stuff mm. to enhance human beings' enjoyment and pleasure and everything else. So those are the two big agenda items. And the whole idea, of course, is the ancient search for immortality. Hence the title of his book, Homo Deus, the man who is God. He's shooting for the stars. He wants humans to turn into gods. And I rather wryly tell people, be very careful with that idea, because the first suggestion of it was made by a snake and uh, (laughs) in the original story in Genesis. And that's what I analyze in the book is this trend, but you know, to come to the heart of this from the Christian perspective, I say to these people who are searching for this solution to death and immortality and so on, you're too late. It's already been solved. The problem of death was solved when Jesus rose from the dead. And the problem of immortality was solved when he, having risen from the dead, sent his apostles out into the world to preach to them that they could have eternal life that would never die if they were prepared to repent and trust him. So what suddenly struck me was the Christian gospel contains infinitely more than the promises that are hyped up made by artificial general intelligence. And we've no idea that we're going to get there even though some people say it'll happen in 30 years. It's always 30 years by the way. But we have the, the, the gospel message that has the great advantage of having been around for 20 centuries and being credible because it is evidence-based. And I thought this gives me a huge opportunity to explain what Christianity is. And very simply put, if people today are prepared to take seriously some of these AGI scenarios, I would like to say, just wait a minute before you give up, have a look at the scenario presented by Christianity for the last 20 centuries and compare and see which one makes more sense. So that's one of the main thrusts of my book.
0: Well, um, just one side note, uh, I, as you know, we're working on a a, lead, a global leadership online school that we'll talk about later. But one of the partners that we're exploring having is Tel Aviv University. We've oh, got really? some great, great friends there. And, uh, they were asking me to serve on the board, do several things like that. And I said, well, on one condition, I want you to get me an appointment with, uh, Yuval Noah Harari. And I nice said, day. I want us to have lunch in Jerusalem and I want to take him to the garden tomb. And, uh, I said, if I and I said, I would love for him to go. I don't know if he'd make that pilgrimage or go on that trip, but to just make the point that came across so clearly, that question has already been answered when Jesus rose uh, from the dead, and he's so bright. You know, I read uh, Bill Gates did an endorsement on Uh, the books that everyone must read and of course he's a brilliant man and I admire him in so many ways especially his generosity and and philanthropy Uh, but uh, he talked about the three books that uh, uh, Yuval has written so I've trudged through those all three of them all right so when but it wasn't until I read this book that I got a primer I felt like I got a Rosetta Stone. So I want to thank you for that.
2: Well, that's my pleasure. That's very interesting because what you don't know, and uh, your listeners won't know, but it looks as if the documentary about my life is going to be released in the U.S. on the 19th of November in cinemas around the country. It's called Against the Tide. Oh, and wonderful. it features two people, myself and Kevin Sorbo, who's a very well-known Hollywood actor.
0: Hercules.
2: Hercules, that's right. But
0: A man of faith well, yeah.
2: Absolutely. And one of the main scenes in it is where we wander around the garden tomb and discuss the resurrection. So there's a major part of that film done in Jerusalem and in Israel. And it may be something that you and your SLU and also your contacts would be interested in. So I think 19th of November, and if people can keep in mind, it's called Against the Tide.
0: Well, we will certainly uh, make sure that gets posted on social media and uh, and may want to talk to you about that. You know, I've got a bone to pick with uh, Kevin. Because, you know, he played Hercules, and everywhere I go, people get us mixed up. All... No, I'm kidding. All right. uh, <laughs> it, it well, well. That... Anyway. Okay. Now, Doc, one last thing. Uh, I love the, the. I mean, the number of scriptures that you've used in this book is staggering, and especially when you consider uh, the context of the book. It is a application and using God's word to answer some of these great, deep, fundamental, but burning questions. Uh, And I love, I remember Toffler's book years ago, Future Shock. Shock. Mm -hmm. So when I read that chapter and the way you, you use that term, Future Shock, and you're talking about the return of the man who is God. So we're going through all this buildup of trying to make man a god, and you go, well, wait a minute. You're gonna be shocked, there's an event coming. Uh, Tell us about that chapter. Well, that's a very important
2: chapter because the notion, uh, the conviction that Christ will return is not some peripheral part of Christianity, as many people think the moment you mention that you believe that Christ will return, they say, hey, half a minute, that's that's crazy. But it isn't crazy. It's actually one of his central claims. And many people are unaware that when he was put on trial before the high priest in Jerusalem, they asked him, was he really the Messiah? And he said, yes. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. They crucified him for that claim to be the figure that the prophet Daniel saw in the fifth century BC coming and Jesus told his disciples privately, he would return. And the apostles preached that he would return. And what I wanted to do was to bring this into focus because it is part of the Christian hope In fact, it's the fulfillment of the Christian hope. And to compare it with all these other scenarios that are being put to us. And it is a very thrilling prospect because the Bible doesn't mince words. It points out that difficult times will come. And there will be a man who claims to be God, whom Christ will destroy at his coming. And that man who claims to be God is very much like the incarnation of some of the scenarios that artificial general intelligence is proposing that people take seriously. And so I wanted to, I wanted to um, indicate that this was the case without doing what often people call pejoratively prophecy mongering and identifying all that prophecy says, but there's no question about it the Bible has things to say about the future because Jesus and the apostles did, just as it says things about the past. And you know, we need to know about both the past and the future. A politician that only talks about the past, what he's done or she's done, interests nobody. It's their plan for the future. But the past gives us an identity. The future gives us our hope. And I wanted to end this book, and I do, by pointing out that amidst all the gloomy scenarios, we can have tremendous hope by being linked to the true God-man, to Jesus who will one day return to take us to be with himself if we trusted him. So it all fits together, it seems to me, and comes to a magnificent, hope-filled climax that anyone can get involved in.
0: Well, Doc, I, I wanna hold up this book, and it's a small book as far as uh number of pages, but it is so well done, 2084. And I promise, if you care about your survival, you care about the future of your children and your grandchildren, you'll want to know. And yet in the midst of all those dire and factual and startling dark truths that are out there, there is a bright light and uh, the blessed hope is central. One thing I noticed doc, and I guess I'm kind of a, a simple guy, but it really, really helped me at the end of every chapter, there's uh, intensive notes. I mean, you document where you got it, and where we can go get the rest of the story, et cetera. But then also, which is what separates this book, there's a scripture index. Hello. And yep. I thought, man, he did that just for me. You know, he knew I'm, he knows I'm dyslexic. He knows I got to read things three times, but it gives me a way to go and look up those verses and make sure I really see it and understand it. So this is the, uh, uh, needless to say, I'm a, I'm a raving fan. Dr. Lennox, no. you, you've written some classics. Uh, this one's gonna leave a mark.
2: Well, thank you very much for the interview. and uh, Thanks to all of you who are watching and listening. And I trust that you will enjoy the book and tell other people about it. It's got its own website. 2084book.com where you can see a trailer and it comes out with a series of videos on each chapter as well that can be obtained. Wow. And you can hear about that on Amazon. It's on Audible and it is available in many different forms in different places.
1: Well, it's only
0: only natural that you'd take advantage of technology on making this message available, right? (laughs) That's right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Lynn. It's always a, a pleasure. We're grateful for your commitment to the faith that was once and, de- once and for all delivered under the saints, and you've made it so relevant and so real and defendable for so many, and we're very grateful. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to There's Always a Way with Dr. Jay Strack. If you enjoyed today's episode, share it with a friend by taking a screenshot and posting it to your story or tagging us on Instagram or Twitter at the letter J Strack 007. If you haven't yet, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast. Because of you, others are able to be encouraged and equipped by these incredible episodes.